Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Frank Capello. I'm Rivka Rivera. Rivka, it's a big week for us. Survivor has returned for its 44th season. Um, did you watch the premiere? I certainly did. And I loved it. Yeah, it was a very strong premiere. Now, I know it's probably might be a little surprising for us to be talking about uh, our our love of Survivor, given this is an anti-capitalist podcast. We are aware that putting people on an island to fight for a million dollars is not exactly uh, the most anti-capitalist. But we but I'm sure this this will, don't worry, be probably a special episode we do or we dive deep into survivor and all its politics but for right now you're just gonna you should know we we loved it and it was a great premiere great premiere great cast of characters a lot happened action-packed um and a pretty exciting uh first tribal council which had already had some twists already had some blind sides we have some real we have some real game players this round and um Mm -hmm. Potentially, there might be some love interests, which we haven't seen in a while. I'm just all around really excited about this. Also, it's that kind of cold in New York where you desperately need to be watching anything on an island to survive. Although I'm going to Puerto Rico this week to see family. So islands IRL. Islands IRL. Um Well, real fast, before we get into our conversation today, we wanted to talk a little bit about um, the concept of commodification, because this is something that we talk about, you know, in this this conversation um, about modern times, just how the commodification of everything in (laughs) our society has uh, become very commonplace, and I think people believe that that is, you know, you know, we, you live within a hegemonic framework, and people come to believe, oh, that's how things should be. If there's money to be made from something, then we should try to be making money from it. And a commodity is really just anything, any object, person, whatever uh, that is ascribed an exchange value or a monetary value, so that it can either be bought, sold, or traded. So, Rivka, what does this kind of stir in you when you think of commodification? A lot. And I really appreciated you breaking that down, simplifying that, if you will. I had a visual of like a children's book. Like there should be a children's book that's got illustrations of like what a commodity is and how to fight commodification. Yeah, it should be called You Are Not a Commodity. You Are Not a Commodity. And your art is not a commodity. I think that's where that's what it stirs in me, particularly at this moment, always as a creator, but especially when I'm in process, which I currently am as I'm working on writing a piece. And I think the one of the one of the biggest consequences of commodification of art is that separation of the product from the process and this feeling this anxiety of I need to be thinking about my art as product which as I was thinking about this I'm thinking like I just want to reject that idea of art as product because my art is process and it's experience and it's a living, breathing ecosystem with lineage into the past and the present and the future. And how can you possibly commodify that? And yet we are told from very early on, society wants you to think of 
you know, the problem is you're not thinking of your art as a business. And like, that's the problem is the messaging Mm -hmm. that I receive often. And I actually think it's the opposite. I found that the illness for me and I keep fighting is like thinking about my art as a business. It doesn't mean I don't want to, I'm, I don't and don't believe in making a living and living a life as an artist, but to think about such a spiritual, incredible event because I don't think of art as just a tangible thing. It's something that's experienced and communicates between human beings and in society to suggest that that itself as a one-dimensional product could have a monetary value. And then you should use that monetary value as a result, as a way to guide your art you know, so find out what's in, find out what's marketable. Mm-hmm. And that should actually be what defines what you you make as an artist. I've heard so often, you should really be like writing for yourself as an actor. I'm like, well, I really wish that's how, you know, these ideas came. But unfortunately, it's like a lot more tragic and spiritually deeper than that. And it's gonna, you know, it comes from when I'm, I'll speak for myself, like that creation process is so it's like a womb process. And so if it comes from here, from that wellspring, that disconnection, I think, is the consequence of commodification for me. Whew. So I guess it stirs a little something in me, Frank. There's some, there some stuff in there. Yeah, no, it because it's so conflicting because like you said, you know, as artists, as creators, you want to we you want to make a living. You want to be compensated for your for your labor and for the work that you put into it and you know that that's the dream to make a a a living from your your art um so there is that drive within it because you know we have to survive materially in this world but then it can get too extreme and you can bleed over into that place where then now you're only thinking about what is the most marketable what is the what is the product that will sell i mean i know when i was working with my writing partner in la and we were trying to you know get staffed on a tv show we were told constantly just like this is what the market is looking for you mm-hmm. should write something like this and it totally gums up your creative process because and the market that's is not, fucking wrong or the market is just reacting to something else that just came out that was successful and now all of these which development execs which is wrong it, and but that's how <laughs> hollywood works it's like oh ted lasso was successful i guess we i guess we want like n- nice happy shows now mm-hmm. or you know what i mean or like oh squid game was successful now we want like dystopia stories like that's literally how it works in but hollywood we want it right now we want it right now so no process just manufacturer copies and i'm and i'm sure that there are writers creators artists who are who are good at that who are like i can see what the market wants and i'm able to create something you know that has value in this market and maybe it's good maybe it's not whatever but i don't know personally any of those times where we've been trying to chase what the market was was when we were creating some of our worst stuff and the times where we just kind of wrote the things that we wanted to write because we thought that they were fun and funny and had something to say that's when we created our best work so for me, it's really a w- antithetical thinking in terms of, especially in terms of of art. Well, it's interesting in the in the sort of in the context of AI and what you know, we're just at the precipice of it, and it's can be ugh, mysterious, exciting, terrifying, like all of the things. I'm sure this is sort of like what it felt like to be at the precipice of the internet. But with AI, I think for writers and the discourse that's been going on. Like, well, what the fuck if if this robot can just turn out like a script that's considered like, as good as like the best scripts of like that 
our generation or whatnot, like, then what's the the point? And I, I don't remember where I heard it. I wish I had it exactly. But the idea that like, do we make art because it's going to be some because of that product? Like, what about the process? You know what? It was just an interesting question to pose of like, what if and very possibly will be the case these robots can make something just as good as you does it does that devalue your human experience as an artist like there's just something more than like the script coming out that i'm that i'm thinking about there and as terrifying as this is and the repercussions certainly economically etc that's a fascinating revelation i mean that already has happened uh specifically at buzzfeed they had just a big round of layoffs and i'm I'm pretty sure I read they were like, we, we can have AI write, you know, BuzzFeed articles. They can put together these lists. They can put together the, and I'm, you know, and I'm not like, and I'm not demeaning like the BuzzFeed writers. I, I worked at BuzzFeed a little bit. There's, there's work that goes into that. And there's, like you said, exactly. there's process and there, and there's passion and there's enjoyment. And there's the people writing it and there's all of that. But it's interesting because I'm like in the dream world where we're all funded artists and we don't need to commodify our art. And it's just like, here's money for being you as the artist. Go write your work and process it. Yeah, I just wonder if the more interesting work would still have a human being attached to it because you can't alienate the two. Ursula K. Le Guin, the author, writes on this point about art and commodification. Books, you know, they're not just commodities. The profit motive often is in conflict with the aims of art. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art, and very often in our art, the art of words. Wow, that is a perfectly put sentiment that sums up what we were just talking about. I'm like, that's what I was trying to say. So, Well, on that note, uh, I think it's time to get to our conversation. But first, just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show. You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. We're going to take a break, but we'll be right back with our conversation about modern times and our guest, Pedro Angel Rivera Munoz. And just a heads up, Pedro lives in Puerto Rico, and during the recording, the coquis, Puerto Rican tree frogs, were out that night, so you might hear a little chirping in the background. Our guest today is Pedro Angel Rivera Munoz. Pedro is an award-winning documentary filmmaker, political writer, and activist. His films include Manos a la Obra, The Story of Operation Bootstrap, and Plena is Work, Plena is Song. His latest film Desalambrando is a documentary exploring collective memories about the land occupation movement in Puerto Rico during the early 70s through the early 80s. He is also, and probably most importantly, my father. Hi, Dad. <laughs> Welcome. My dear. <laughs> Pedro, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, really. It's my pleasure. It's really special to have you on this um, show because 
so much of my film knowledge. I mean, you're the first person to show me films, starting with Aesop's Fables. And I remember an early memory of when you showed me Aesop's Fables. My first idea of death was that when you died, do you remember this, Dad? Showing me this and that my my initial instinct was that when you die, you get flattened out and put on film strips and that's death. Right. Early core memory. I mean, I don't, well, I don't know that I don't believe that anymore, but. That's a pretty beautiful conception of the afterlife to be immortalized in film. It was kind of, yeah, I think I, I think I was into it. I think it was a little scary, but for some reason, yeah, that was. It's one way of dealing with it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Pedro, you chose a really wonderful movie for us to watch, a movie that I have had, sadly, up until this point, never seen. Uh, we watched Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. Uh, it is a 1936 film written and directed by Charlie Chaplin in which his iconic Little Tramp character struggles to survive in the modern industrialized world. Uh, the movie takes place during the Great Depression and is thought to be commentary on the desperate employment and financial conditions people faced during the time. The movie stars Chaplin, Paulette Goddard, and Henry Bergman, um, and it is part silent film, part talky, and notably the first time that Chaplin's voice is heard in a film. And we're going to get into the movie, but before we actually start, I want to ask you, so in in your camera, in your frame right now, uh, right behind you is a Charlie Chaplin poster, a piece of Charlie Chaplin artwork. What, right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yes. Like I mentioned uh, to you off camera before, this is one of those serendipities with uh, picking Chaplin's work in my own life. <laughs> That poster is part of a collection of posters that was published uh, over 20 years ago of posters produced in Cuba, mostly film posters uh, dealing with documentary and fiction films. And one of those was done in the name of this documentary about Chaplin, which was really, it was called for the first time, or the primera vez, because it was the first time like it was your first time watching Modern Times, it was their first time watching Chaplin ever in, in the countryside in Cuba. Was this, was this after the revolution? This was during the revolution. During the revolution. Yeah, wow. during the uh, first phase of the revolution, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Late, the, during the 60s, you know, kind of like when the revolution was kind of peaking in enthusiasm and, and one of the ways in which this enthusiasm is expressed is through his artwork in the in the on the field of posters for films. You know, Cuban Cuban posters became famous throughout Latin America because they have such a uh, such a style, <laughs> such exuberance. You know, even you, you can see in the in this poster, there's a sense of exuberance. You know. Yeah. Yes, it's very. It's very colorful for anyone just listening. It's it's very very colorful. There's like this floral bed with like a cha a chaplain, uh, you know, kind of sketch on top. It's 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 really beautiful. You have great posters, Dad, but I don't think I've ever seen that one. I'm gonna steal it. <laughs> no, that one I had, I had you know I had it there, and when when we talked about doing this, it sort of came up. I said, wait a second, I think I have a poster of that film <laughs> somewhere. So I I was able to find it. And, and like uh, a true filmmaker, you put it in the frame. Yeah, the least I could do. Well, it's going to be interesting. I mean, that's fascinating to have shown this early on in the revolution because this film is so has so many themes of revolution in it, and we'll get into it. So, this film, some historical context, was made in 1936, which was 
kind of towards right past right past the peak of the Great Depression. The Great Depression began in 1929. FDR is the president. And at the height of the Depression in 1933, almost 25% of the nation's total workforce were unemployed. And that brings to a number of people that I can't read this number. <laughs> it's uh, 12,830,000. It's a crazy amount of people who were unemployed. And wage income for workers who were lucky enough to have kept their jobs fell um, down to 42.5% between 1929 and 1933. So this is what's happening at the time. This movie was also three made three years prior to the start of World War II, but Hitler is full-on doing his horrible, evil thing in Germany. Mussolini is in Italy. And additionally, this is also at a point where the first big talking picture was the jazz singer, 1927, so 10 years prior. So really, we see a lot of, and we'll talk about this, but Chaplin not only dealing with themes of modernization in the workplace, but also in this industry and his own sort of ambivalence around talking pictures. And this really is half half talky, half silent. It's a fascinating film. But let's just start with, Dad, why, why this picture? Why did you want to talk about this movie? Well, I have a very personal connection to this film in a number, you know, number of levels. Uh, I have also shown this film to, when I was teaching in, in college here in Puerto Rico, uh, I had just gotten back from, after many years in, in New York City, returned to Puerto Rico to live and work here. Uh, this is about 20 years back. And uh, I got this job teaching at the University of Puerto Rico in the eastern part of the uh, country, in the southeast, a place called Umacao. I was um, part of the Courses that I, that I need to teach were uh, so introduction to social sciences, sociology. And those are the two kind of types of courses I, I was hired to teach. So I kind of twisted the curriculum around because, you know, I had sort of some flexibility to do it. I thought <laughs> later I found out I didn't have that much. <laughs> but anyways, I included modern times as part of the curriculum of sociology because we were we were studying modernity modernization, you know, and uh, capitalism. <laughs> so uh, I figured this was a perfect text, textbook for the class. But they'd never seen Chaplin, I found out. Found out they'd never seen any Chaplin. They didn't know Chaplin at all. I think that's true for a lot of people. I mean, I haven't seen, I'm, I'm almost ashamed to say I haven't seen as much Chaplin as now I definitely will or should, but it's unbelievable to watch and and recognize that especially for artists this is sort of like seminal storytelling and it's ironic because chaplin was wildly popular <laughs> we're not talking about an obscure you know right. an obscure filmmaker uh if anything the uh, one of the ironies again of chaplin's life and work is that chaplin really lived through the poverty he depicted i mean he really he knew what poverty was about and he really lived through it, and and uh, all the uh, all those forms of oppression he depicts in his films, he lived through them. This was personal to him, and at the same time, he became a rich man. So he became kind of like the uh, emblem, the icon of the rags to riches mythology that capitalism promotes. Here he is. Yeah, he's actually his own personal life is an example of if you you know you can make it if you really try. If you work hard, you can go from rags to riches. He did. However, 
He didn't buy into that myth, even though he experienced it. His work is not about that at all. Yeah, I, I, I did a little bit of research in Chaplin, and to speak to what you were saying, he w had been forced into workhouses before right. the age wow. of nine. You know, this was when child this is when child labor was still uh, legal. So, like as you said, really experienced the this modern oppression of this time. I mean, this and as you were saying, clearly his politics, uh, his working class politics stayed with him even as he became, you know, wildly successful. And this this movie was made not towards, I wouldn't say the end of his career, but like the middle of his career. He's, he's immensely at the peak. Yeah, at the, at the peak. He's immensely famous, popular. He's he's the highest paid actor in Hollywood's history at this point. Um, and he makes this film, which to me, the my big takeaway was just. This this movie is emblematic of how society treats humans as disposable commodities. Yeah. In all kinds of ways. Yeah. Throughout the film, throughout the film, all his gags, you know, Chaplin's gags are really narrative devices to that they detonate as it releases them. Mm -hmm. they, it's like grenades, and they and they and just detonates in full of irony and radical critique of this civilization and specifically capitalist civilization. You know, even though in his film, in the text of the film, other people talk about the film, they talk about industrial society. But he's talking about capitalist industrial society. He's very aware of that. Even though he does not ever in the film, you see direct use of the term capitalism. He doesn't use the term. He does use the term communist. He does, he does refer to that you know, when he when in the film, when he's framed, mm -hmm. you know, when, when he's basically thrown in jail because he's at the right place at the wrong time, <laughs> he's uh, he's uh, he's he gets he gets thrown in jail and and he says it. He's thrown in jail because he's he, he's accused of being a communist. And he uses in the text of the film, he uses the word communist, which reminds us that he's aware of what's going on. This is 1936. This is the peak of the Communist Party in the United States. As a party, it's not just yeah. like you know. They, they this this is a very influential party. This is a party that whose main leader Browder sat with the president with FDR. Yeah, to discuss issues. It means it has the the Communist Party had had a strong strong base of support, and that doesn't mean that they had you know the millions that the other parties have, but they have enough you know because in politics it's not only numbers. Is influence. They were incredibly influential at that time, and they were purpose. They were purposely whitewashed out of American history, especially the history that we're taught. You know, in American the American education system. You know, growing up, we're always taught FDR came along, things were bad. He gave us the New Deal, and then <laughs> things were good again. And yes. it's completely, completely erases the fact that there was, like you said, the Communist Party was a very radical, militant. Well, sometimes militant group in you know in seizing factories and in organizing industry and pushing FDR and the Democrats to implement most of those New Deal programs. So like people forget, you know, like I got an uncle who's in an electrician union and he lives a and he's retired now. He lives a great life. He, you know, huge pension. And I said to him one time, I'm like, you know, you have everything you have because of communists. And he was like, <laughs> get the fuck out of here. No, I don't. And I was like, all right, okay, all right. It's completely forgotten. It's purposely forgotten. It has been erased, conveniently erased. But, uh, yeah. you know, still, 
you could erase those memories, but I'll try anyways. You know, but films like this one are a strong reminder. And you know what's you know what's so incredible about I love that you pointed out, Dad, that the few places where text is used, it's so profound. It's so good. Deep. It's, it's deep, so yeah. deep. But this story, and I think what Chaplin felt deeply about the silent picture and potentially why there was so much um he was fighting this internal fight about what do I do about talking pictures and word? But what he said about, he wrote in the Times in 1931, I love this. The silent picture, first of all, is a universal means of expression. Talking pictures necessarily have a limited field. They're held down to the particular tongues of particular races. So this was an artist who understood so deeply the universality of the body and how to tell stories through the body and through pictures. So like the first picture in the film is all these sheep moving forward and it just falls into this picture of all these bodies moving into a factory, which then juxtaposes, I think, with that image of there's always these bodies. He plays always with these bodies like waves of people, right? And then the bodies that come forward when he falls out of a wagon and into this communist protest, right? And then he's in it, quote unquote, accidentally, but it's another form of a movement of bodies. So there's always this ever present tension between the individual and organized bodies that we are always part of this collective. And do you want to be a part of the sheep or part of the rise, the rising tide? So the understanding of how you can tell that story so perfectly with, I mean, that's what film gives us, that it is a medium of the picture, but also the body. Um, and this was, I mean, this was remarkable for that. As we speak, silence in film, as in music, remains central to the expression. You could take any major masterpiece, nowadays contemporary masterpiece, from Tarkovsky to, you know, any... And American cinema too, you know, take John Casavides, you could go the whole range and you'll find and those films are powerful because they, they really have that dialectic between the, the spoken word and the silence, you know, and, and uh, as in Chaplin, there's no split, no mind-body split. You know, the one thing that Chaplin and everybody else in, 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 from philosophy from that thing, to this day, they have criticized, you know, about Western civilization, that mind-body split. Mm. There's no mind-body split, which is goes to to what you're saying, that uh, in Chaplin, you see that presence of the body at every level, you know. And so spoken language, is, he satirizes to an extent, you know, it's his way of kind of saying, well, you know, uh, it's overrated, perhaps. <laughs> well, the whole end of the film, he loses his words. He's supposed to like sing this number for like his final, he keeps trying to get a job, right? And his final job exactly. is his girlfriend who like they picked up off the street to do this dance at a club is like, I got you, gets him out of jail. And she's like, I got you a job. You just have to sing and wait tables. He's terrible at waiting tables. He's like, maybe I can sing. I don't know. And she writes the lyrics down on his like cuff and he loses it. And so he just makes up a song. But I think so, but is still able to make the audience laugh with just his, his clowning. And so he's saying there, you don't need words to connect. Words are choking him. Words are choking. He can hardly speak, you know, because of words. <laughs> so it's right. like when he loses them, that's when he really expresses himself with sound. But, you know, it's like, and so he, he overcomes that. It's important that you bring that up because in Chaplin, anti-capitalism is not 
only, and not that, not that that slight matters, but it's not only a critique of economic exploitation or uh, alienation, you know, where you're really completely detached from the product. Certainly that's there. And the fact that, you know, you become a literal cog in the machine. Yeah, he gets sucked into the machine at one point. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, that's the part of the brilliance of this film. It's so direct and yet it's so complex in, it's so in, in, in what it suggests. Mm -hmm. You know, the images are very straightforward, but what it's suggesting goes far beyond the immediate appearance of what you're seeing, you know. Uh, it's a critique of civilization. I remember when I was discussing the film with my students, I said, you know, this is, remember here, this is like, in a way, the peak of capitalist rationality and also the crisis of it. Because in the 1930s, the capitalist rationality is being questioned. The Soviet Union is very high up there in reputation. You know, the, the Soviet Union was seen as, the, as, as, as a place to admire, mm -hmm. to look for. You know, that's the society that we want because they have that reputation in the 1930s. But also in the case of uh, Chaplin, in the same way that Chaplin was not, as you're ideologically speaking, a communist. He was accused of being a communist, but he d denied being a communist, although he was a communist affiliate and sympathizer ostensibly. Right. And he was he was an anti-communist for sure. Remember, many in a, in a communist party, many people join a communist party. That doesn't mean they're ideologically Marxist, Leninist, or communist in a, in a, in a, in that doctrinaire way. Mm -hmm. Because communism, when you think about it, is much older than Marx, Lenin, and the Soviet Union, and all the 20th century history of socialism. There's, there's communism in the French Revolution. The people who call themselves communists before Marx way before Marx, not to mention Christian communists, not to mention communist so-called primitive societies. Nomadic which, tribes, by yeah. the way, were more than, they were a lot longer in existence than, we, than we've been. If you look at it that way, in terms of the, the chronology, there's been, communism has been around longer than capitalism. That's been around for 500 years. The, the anthropological, archaeological evidence shows that there were classless communist societies before for thousands of years. Mm. They have different ways, different economic arrangements, but the reason why we call them communists is because the commons, the air, the land, the water, those are the commons. Mm -hmm. They belong to the commons. It's not that complicated, but we have, it's become complicated because communism as a horizon is dangerous in class societies. You know, class societies don't want to be anything else but any, anything but class societies. So anything that threatens class is going to be addressed with repression and, and it's going to be addressed with hostility. And that's why Charlie Chaplin was addressed with hostility and repression. I mean, he was thrown out of the United States, right? Yeah. After the, F after the FBI started investigating him. Because that's what they do. Because someone saw this movie and they're like, wait a minute. Yeah, this guy is, you know, has some affiliations here. And they did it before the Second World War. Yeah. Right. You know, because if, that, if it would have been during, during the Second World War, maybe not. Because it's little detail. Old Joseph Stalin was an ally of President Roosevelt mm -hmm. and England as well. Churchill. You know, they were allies and they hated each other. <laughs> I don't know. They're not like they, they didn't like each other. Well, personally, apparently they, they got along. But, but they represented, you know, very different systems. 
except they had a common enemy, so they joined. But be, you know what I want to what I was getting at is that in, in in modern times there's also a a running commentary and critique as such, you know, wage slavery. Communists cri criticized wage slavery also, but he was, you know, there's several times where he says the one, the first time he brings it up is really funny when he says, got to get a home. I said, I guess I had to have to work. Well, prior to that, he, he tries to go back, get back to jail because he had a better time in jail than at the factory job. Because he didn't want to work. All his works, all the jobs he gets, he fucks it up, right? He, he really, mm -hmm. he can't, he can't do it. Well, he doesn't want to do that specific kind of work. Like, he doesn't want to be a cog in this machine. No, it's alienated work. Exactly. The opening scene in the first factory on the assembly line is, you know, it's so perfect. It's so simple. Just the, the, the division of labor of these men on the assembly line, each of them That's doing nice. the same repetitive task over and over and over again. And obviously, you know, the... It, he plays for gags, you know, there's kind of like the- It's comedic brilliance. They clearly took, every time you've seen that, you're like, those bits have been taken from this. But one of the best details is when he, like when he goes on break and he can't stop doing his like mechanized gesture. Yeah, of like turning the bolts. We call that mm -hmm. repetitive motion syndrome nowadays. In case people think it's obsolete, well, he's, he's, he's already addressing what was a real problem back then already because of the assembly line. Henry Ford, by the way, was condecorated by the Nazi army, the Nazi government. Army. That's right. And he's the inventor of the assembly line. Actually, I, I did a little research because I was like, what did the, I was able to go back to the assembly line, uh, often credited to Ford, but had actually existed for about a century in different iterations. In fact, it wasn't even Ford who introduced the idea at Ford Motors. It was suggested by an employee, some guy named William Pa Clan, upon visiting from the Swift and Company's slaughterhouse uh -huh. in Chicago. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. in which, yeah. And they, they called that a disassembly line because that's where they oh. were butchering carcasses of... That's so brutal. Somehow, over the course of history, the assembly line got credited to Henry Ford. So I just want to lay that out for everyone right now. He did consolidate it, though. I he mean, did consolidate. You know, yeah. He did consolidate it and 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 did it and and apply that technology in a massive way. And you know, uh, you know, Henry Ford had his own cinema apparatus in his industry, so he recorded all those processes. Oh wow! Uh, including when Diego Rivera, well-known communist at the time, was hired by his uh, Edsel, who was his nephew, I think, Edsel Ford hired. Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo, but Diego Rivera primarily, to go to Detroit and do the murals that you see in Detroit. That was sponsored by Ford. So he recorded all that stuff. Wow. Not him. Had his own crew. <laughs> he wasn't behind the camera. Yeah. He wasn't he, he wasn't racking focus himself. Yeah. <laughs> he just he made sure someone was in charge and uh to do it. And and this all this material is there. A friend of mine did a documentary about that. It's called Diego's uh Rivera's Detroit. And and it's using all that material from Ford. Again, getting back to the issue of on, on work, how you know, even within the Marxist tradition, Marxist uh, son-in-law Paul Lafarge wrote a an essay in 1870s. Uh, it's called the in Spanish, in English they, they translated as the right to be lazy, <laughs> and it's a whole critique on the not only the bourgeois capitalist work ethic, you know, the, the idea that if you don't work, you're bummed. <laughs> and uh, you notice that 
in, in, in modern times, several times where he has to go into the street, you hear hallelujah and a bump. <laughs> that's, a, that's an IWW song. Oh, wow. International Workers of the World song. It was an American folk song that, that they adopted for their purposes. And so you hear that, you know, he plays, he plays that there and it's, the, it's, an, it's an O to the, to the bump, to the unemployed, wow. to the tramp. It's not the industrial worker that, that Chaplin uh, iconized, you know, it's, 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 the, it's the tramp. <laughs> it's the one that the system spits out. Although, of course, he has sympathy for the worker in the, in the, in the workplace, where you notice his most, most of the sympathy is outside the workplace. And actually, along the lines of work, it's, he, the happiest he is is by the end, you mentioned it's not work, it's alienated work, work in a factory. Right. When he's singing and joyful and they, you know, you finally think that they're going to be connected to something that they're doing that they may potentially want to be doing. And that right. gets torn away. But that's a very specific difference. I wanted to jump back and talk about the factory one more time, because I think because I think it could have been represented of like this factory, a bad place to work, but it was so specific and that the specificity was important. And again, this, the choice uh, when sound and text and language was used, it was so brilliant. So we do have a sound clip. This is one of my favorite moments was the billows feeding machine. My friends, this record comes to you through the sales talk transcription company incorporated. Your speaker, the mechanical salesman. May I take the pleasure of introducing Mr. J. Willicombe Billows, the inventor of the Billows feeding machine, a practical device which automatically feeds your men while at work. Don't stop for lunch. Be ahead of your competitor. The Billows feeding machine will eliminate the lunch hour, increase your production, and decrease your overhead. Allow us to point out some of the features of this wonderful machine. Its beautiful aerodynamic streamlined body its smoothness of action made silent by our electroporous metal ball bearings. Let us acquaint you with our automaton soup plate. Its compressed air blower. No breath necessary. No energy required to cool the soup. Notice the revolving plate with the automatic food pusher. Observe our countershaft double knee action corn feeder with its synchromesh transmission, which enables you to shift from high to low gear by the mere tip of the tongue. Then there is the hydro-compressed sterilized mouth wiper. Its factors of control ensure against spots on the shirt front. These are but a few of the delightful features of the Billows feeding machine. Let us demonstrate with one of your workers, for actions speak louder than words. Remember, if you wish to keep ahead of your competitor, you cannot afford to ignore the importance of the Billows feeding machine. Ah, right, the feeding machine. That's Taylorism, the study of uh, motion and move, work movements. They invented that in the 1920s. Frederick Taylor and other people, you know, it's like assembly line. There's a number of people that that get involved. So what strikes me about this is how present tense it is. This could be an Amazon factory as, you know, they go into the next scene where he goes into the bathroom and there's the big brother camera of the boss telling him to stop taking his break. I wouldn't be surprised to see Jeff Bezos take a Billows feeding machine so that workers didn't have to stop working. We have 14-hour shifts where Amazon workers don't get bathroom breaks. I mean, I'm I would be I would love to see Chaplin's take on this Amazon delivery man who has to pee in a bottle so they doesn't take bathroom breaks. You know, there's some profound comedy that only highlights how heinous and horrific this reality is, but it's so I mean, this is this is today. And even back then, you know, in the 30s, there were studies that were made about a the conditions of work in the factories, like automobile factories, and 
the uh, amount of accidents, and he makes reference to the accidents in the film too, you know, people get hurt at the job. <laughs> and the amount of people that got hurt at the job was really quite impressive. I lost track now of the statistics. I, you know, when I was working at a, one of my many jobs, I was working doing uh, uh, in, the, in the asbestos removal industry. Oh, Jesus. So I became very aware of those issues of accidents at a job and also how job, how work kills you, how working conditions can kill you cumulatively or, or on the spot. If it's an accident, it could die on the spot. My own, one of my own, my, my brothers, I had a, a few brothers on my father's side that, that moved, migrated to New York during the 30s. And uh, one of them, he lost uh, all his fingers. All his fingers, he lost them. So I remember. And uh, word has it that he did that on purpose. Put his hand in, in the, oh, in the uh, machine. Apparently, Apparently, a number of workers would hurt themselves on purpose uh, because after after fighting over rights, working conditions, safe working conditions, that's been a long, long struggle to this day. But in the 30s, one of the achievements of the working class movement at that point was to get better working conditions, get Social Security, get all those benefits you were referring to before. This business of people, you know, kind of sabotaging the system in all kinds of ways, trying to work the, the way around it, included hurting themselves sometimes. You see that Chaplin has this play in the film where he dances and all that. He's really, he's poking fun at that stuff and, and, and makes, you know, making it ironic. You know, the fact that he's been grinded in that car is both a metaphor of that alienation, but it's also a description of the working condition, literally working conditions were grinding people's lives. Miners working in a mine, you know, uh, women working in cotton mills. And, you know, after years there, that they're, they're, you have the brown lung, black lung, white lung. All those are conditions produced by industry, by working conditions. And, you know, and people, people then retire and they're wasted. They're, they, they spend their retirement lives sick, Wanting to die because they, you know, they don't, it's, it's, it's terrible. And, and, and that's, that's still the case. You know, we haven't quite gotten out of that one. No. And it's, it's one of the, the main themes of this film. And not only the way that uh, industry treats these workers as disposable, but the way that the state also treats, you know, the prisoners and mm. chaplain as disposable. It's, it's all through, you know, like he's ba he's drawing a straight line between, you know, the, the capitalist state and the capitalist industry in this movie. But the character of the, of the, the character of the gamin, the woman. Yeah. Who's, a, who's an orphan who's basically, you know, the, the system just grinds her also. And she escapes. Escape is a really important theme in this film. Mm. Sure. Very important, you know, because ultimately the, the film narrative is, is really geared towards looking for a horizon. And there's literally... In the uh, in what we like, the epilogue, mm -hmm. almost you know, at the very end, when they they meet again, the couple, right? Because it's a love story in the midst of all this. And they were really in love. They were really that was part of the desire to create this film. He was inspired to make this movie after meeting her. That's right. That that insistence in looking for a way out, where they, you literally see them at walking towards the horizon. Yeah, walk walking towards nature. You know, when they say, well. We're not going to give up. You got to live. Ultimately, he says, you got to live because this is ultimately a battle for life. It's not a battle against capitalism. It's not against. It's for. 
and they're constantly seeking an alternative throughout the entire film. They're, they're, they're looking for different ways to subvert, uh, you know, the normal economic organization that they've been forced into. You know, he gets hired as a night watchman and they're <laughs> like, great, we can live in, the, in the, a night watchman in the department store. And he's like, great, we can live in this department store now. And, you know, they have this whole fantasy sequence where it's just them just living out in a little, you know, a little house. And it's, you know, there's a cow and there's, there's, there's trees and they're, they're picking fruit off and it's, 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 it's deprived of work. It's deprived of having to sell your labor. And they're, they're clearly bucking against the system that has chewed them both up and spit them out um, while still trying to exist. I mean, like the whole fact that he would rather be in jail than go back to work, I think is such a brilliant, such a brilliant touch because with being imprisoned, or at least in this film, comes the, I guess, sense of security that you don't have to worry about where you're going to sleep at night. You, you have know, a you're meal. Not, you're not, you have a meal you know, every day, and you don't have to sell your labor. And it's like, it's, it is prison. And obviously, the prison system in this country is absolutely horrendous. But it really underscored how brutal this modern life was for him and that he opted to go back to prison as often as he could. I have had friends, I have had friends who've been in prison who told me this, that they felt more comfortable in prison than outside because they felt so completely alienated back in the so-called free community because there's so many obstacles once you've been in jail. You know, the stigma is too powerful. You know, it, it, it's not a metaphor, really. It, it, when you think about it, in, in you know, the film... And that film really lays out a lot of stuff that's really not meta- metaphoric in that sense. Just that he's so brilliant, he turns it into a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's able to turn it around and, and, and do the things that you're both referring to. That there's a sense of uh, not giving up, a sense of agency, a strong sense of agency. And he puts it in the body, which again, I think is... I learned so much as an artist, and it was such a profound reminder of how important putting it in your body is for the message to those watching your film, because we have these mirror neurons. So watching that radical joy of these two characters that otherwise in so much media, we would be taught to look down on to, I mean, look at how we treat the unhoused population in society today. You're supposed to look, literally look away because there's, there's just too much that we're taught about that. It's too scary to look in someone's eyes and think, wow, I'm closer to that than I ever will be to a billionaire. So I'm going to look up and idolize the Beyonce's and the, and I do love Beyonce, but I'm going to look up and idolize those (laughs) billionaire status and celebrity status, but not look down, even though that's where I'm much closer reality for all of us in this day and age towards being. So this film gave them so much joy, especially, um, what was the female character's name? Why am I blanking on that? The gammon. The gammon. The gammon was from beginning to the end, total radical joy and infuses him with radical joy. She doesn't once, I mean, even in all the horror of her conditions and her siblings get pulled away from her, she still has this, her joy seems to be what motivates her to keep moving. And I feel like this is a theme that keeps coming up as Frank and I have been doing interviews in this podcast is what can art do to motivate and inspire a revolution? And that to me was the thread in this film was this radical joy, particularly her female radical joy that she moves through the whole film. 
And I mean, they meet when she steals a loaf of bread and right. he, you know, takes the fall for her in a, joy, in a joyous way because he wants to go back to jail. <laughs> he wants to go back to jail. What a great cute meet. And this is a good time to remind our audience, if you see someone stealing food, no, you didn't. Right, right. No, you didn't. No, you, if you see someone stealing diapers or medicine, no, you didn't. And that's something that's really, again, takes us to the radicalism that this film has contained because it's a... It's really a critique of bourgeois morality and, and a, in, a, in a real radical way. And I don't mean, when I say bourgeois morality, I don't, I'm not talking just about the capitalist class. I'm talking about the whole of society. We all have mm -hmm. some of that ideology, you know, instilled in ourselves. We think stealing is bad. And even, even though we may politically understand why people do it, deep down, we still think morally is something wrong with it, you know? And you can't watch this film and say, watch them, watch her steal bananas off a ship for her two starving siblings and smiling and joyful and feel morally conflicted. Like, it's very difficult, which is what's great about this movie. Well, there's that wonderful moment where the, the, the robbers that go into the department store where he's working as a watchman realize... Because one of them yeah, yeah, was yeah. his cellmate, <laughs> so it's a whole, you know, they become buddies, right? Instead of <laughs> well, he said they say we're not burglars, we're just hungry. That's it. We're, we're just, just hungry. hungry. That's the line. And he says it. He says that in many different forms mm. throughout the film. There's different ways of do, you know saying it and and suggesting it that from the very beginning the issue of food is really right there. I mean, and then the the character of the the owner surveillance character, you know, the 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 capitalist character in the film, the factory, was kind of like capitalist owner. He makes it kind of the symbol of the class. And and, uh, and you'll see how he's doing his cross puzzle. Great introduction that they they cut to the like the owner's office and all he's doing is a puzzle. He's just doing a puzzle because the puzzle. <laughs> the capitalist class, the ownership class, doesn't perform any labor. They don't do anything. But all they, they worked do, really hard to get there. Yeah, they worked really hard to inherit stolen wealth and then use it to exploit other workers you know and again he does it, it it's like cartoonist at the same time it's very deep because he's really going again at the issue of what do you mean working why is working so honorable in this society the guys who say it don't work and those who work they hate it they don't have enough even even if they work you know and you see the, the whole issue of the unemployed the, the bridge between be between being a criminal and being a worker, you know, they, you're a worker at one time and another time you're a criminal. You know, it's interesting, even even in the theme of you were saying this morality, the twist on that is even though they see, right, they see this um, family that has a house and they have this daydream sequence about, which is amazing, where the cow comes by. He doesn't even milk the cow. Just every Everything is brilliant. He doesn't even milk the cow. The, the milk just comes out of the gutter. But then later she finds him a house and it's a really, it's like a dilapidated house by the water. A little shanty. You know, he gets, yeah, all the great humor that comes with that. But they're still happy. The message is they oh, just yeah. want a place to share a meal. They don't care if there's a cow that gives them milk coming right out of the udder. No one has to do work for it. But that's the utopia. Remember at one point when he meets her, he says, now, where do you live? And she says, no place anywhere. That's utopia. That's the definition of utopia. It's no place any and it's anywhere. And she, like you said, she is joy. She, she, in the film, she represents joy. 
It's the joy of the possibility of being no place and anywhere. And the joy of not having to participate in this society, in this, in this, this, this capitalist society. Like the, all, their, their, their happiest moments are the moments where they are. When they're not here. <laughs> when they're not, when they're not working, when they're not participating in the exploitative nature of these modern times, you know? And I think that's true for people. And I think we get really caught up in the, in what we've inherited from this society to believe that, but what, what's the difference between, I like to work. I don't want to just not work, but the specific idea of, this work that's alienated versus doing something that comes out of your spirit for the sake of joy and feeling really great about what you're offering to society, that that key difference. Well, you know how in Spanish you say, trabajar para vivir o vivir para trabajar. Work to live or live to work. And the difference is, is very radical, but at the same time in daily life, everyday life is blurry. It is really, it is the, the fundamental difference. You're gonna work, because you're going to live or you're going to live so you could work. <laughs> What's your purpose in life? <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the critique, the, the deep critique in the film. That's the logic that a film like this fires its main criticism at. It's really weird. And, when you, and, you, and he does it all the time. And he dances throughout the film. It, the whole film is a, it's a dance, you know, from beginning to end. He's, it's just choreographed, you know, all this. The way he gets out of trouble is he figures a way out. It's all, you know, it's all, it's beautiful dance, you know, throughout. When there's a fight, you know, he, fighting, he dances. <laughs> his physicality, his performance is so beautiful. I, it's, it really blew me away. Um, I mean, just, I, I think my favorite of all was the, the roller skating scene where he's oh. roller skating near the ledge. Yes. Blindfolded, yes. yeah, and I don't know how they shot. Honestly, I was like, "How did they shoot that?" Because that, like, either that's either they did that in camera and they like superimposed like a fake ledge, or he did his stunts. He did his stunts. It wasn't no. It wasn't. So he was else. he was skating near an actual ledge, blindfolded. This is stunts. Uh, I don't know what the trick was with that, but I mean, the guy, the guy that you see there, that's him. He did all these. He didn't have a stunt man. It's unbelievable. I did a film where it's it's called White Workers Organized. It was meant to be like an introduction to workers' history in Puerto Rico. So in the intro, we explore these themes about work. We interview this economist who lays it out really well. He says, well, you know, in, 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 in this kind of society we live, we treasure the product of labor. We treat the laborer like it's nothing. And this, when, when they're at the department store in that fantasy room with the fancy bed and which she, she wears that mink coat, I use that sequence. In the film, I quoted that in my film because it was so clearly laid out there. They are in, enchanted with all this stuff, and yet they're on the street, you know. <laughs> they're on the street. The people who produce this, they're on the street. They're not, or they're treated like they're not worth much. But they're happy that we also, <laughs> they don't have that, you know, because they reject that logic. And you figure, well, maybe some people would see the film and, and figure, oh, well, that was, you know, back then because... Not really. When you think about it today, there's a lot of movements in Europe, throughout the United States, in many places where there's groups of people who think that way. They want to step out of the logic of capitalism. Especially today, I think people, if they, I think people are unconsciously and inherently starting to understand that the way that society is organized is not working. It's not working for the masses. It's not working 
for the working uh, people. <laughs> for the working people, you know, it's it's harder than ever to 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 buy a house, to go to college, to retire. I mean, the amount of uh, mental health issues that have been, you know, growing and becoming exacerbated over the last like 20, 30 years, like people, people's very biology are, I think, you know, reacting against this system. And this system is at a point of crisis right now. It is at a, you know, like it, it is very quickly in the last decade, especially since the financial crisis, you know, the, the promise of capitalism is, is, <laughs> No one's buying it anymore. You know, like the system is not providing for everybody. It's only providing for those at the top and everyone at the bottom is it's it's their conditions are getting worse. And that's the opposite of what communism is about. Because communism is the solution for everyone, for the common, you know, for, for the common. So uh, walking towards that horizon that the film, the film like Modern Times points towards is still very much it's still very relevant. It's still a very powerful metaphor. And it is a metaphor. You know, he was an artist. And he was a clown. He said it. He said it. I'm just a clown. People here sometimes in Puerto Rico, when they get pissed at politicians, they call them clowns. And I said, no, 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 no. No. Don't insult clowns. <laughs> Don't insult clowns, you know. Clowns are very important in society. They always have been. The ones that poke fun at power. And don't quite believe the story, you know. They they always spinning the thing around. I mean, we should all aspire to be more like Chaplin and Godard in this film, and embrace that radical joy, that radical hopefulness, and try to imagine an alternative, uh, a, a better world that we can live in. So, Dad, part of what we like to do at the sort of end of this conversation is hand out awards. Some movie awards for uh, this film. So our first award is going to go to the character. This award is called A Point with a View. And this is going to go to the character with the best politics in the movie. So who would you award this to, Dad? Best politics in the film. That's, that's a tough one. <laughs> that's a tough one. But, uh, of course, one would gravitate normally to say the Trump. But there's something about the gamin that... You know, yeah. that I, I think takes me there. It's more subtle. It's more subtle because it's camouflage. You know, because their character is like femme kind of character, you know, in today's. But that's that's all. It's, it's all a, a disguise. She's really a, a, a fighter. She's here a fighter. And she bails him out <laughs> throughout. Yeah, she's the best. She bails her out the first time. But then after that. She bails him out. Okay, despicable you, Dad. This goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie. It's got to be the factory owner and the guys yeah. who the guys who bring in the feeding machine, right? Those those are the competing. I think those are competing characters for sure. But mm -hmm. there's also the uh, institutional people. You know, the ones that the ones that reproduce the system socially, the uh, orphan house, the jails. You know, the police. We could just give it to all of them, I think. I think yeah, they, I think they, they can have you know, it. They can all have situation it. They, they could all share the award. Yeah, <laughs> of, 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 they have to be they have to be socialist about their award. They get to they get to share it. They're not going to like they that. <laughs> and then the final award is a star is scorned. This goes to the supporting character in the movie that you that this movie should actually be about, or a, a story that you would want to see a supporting character in this movie, like what what their own movie would be. For me, it's the crooks. It's the the crooks, but the, the crook. I want to know the crook. Yeah, 
I want to see what happens between him losing his job at the factory into him becoming a thief or a burglar. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I agree. And that's interesting because that's the one that he had conflict with at the workplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They had conflict at the workplace. And when they find themselves outside the workplace, they became buddies. Well, it's like that shared struggle that they went through. You know, it's like in, they might have had their tension in the moment. But as soon as you see someone on the outside, it's like, hey, we're brothers. It's mm-hmm. like how I feel about every guy from New Jersey. <laughs> if I'm in New Jersey, that guy will probably want to fight me. But if we're outside of New Jersey, <laughs> we're like best friends. It's, best friends. It's, it's a very interesting dynamic. Then I grew a sprinting way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> Pandero, before, before we leave... Um, We like to discuss how we as artists and people strive to practice our anti-capitalist beliefs in our own lives with all of its complexities and contradictions. So is there one thing that you do in your life or a practice that you engage in that you would like to share with us in the audience? Well, I remember Ripka kind of asked me a similar question. And in jest, I told her that every day I make sure I curse capitalism. And it's not that I get up with that thought in mind. It's kind of, you know, it, it, at some point during the day, it just has to happen. Something prompts me to say, God damn, fucking capitalism. But you know, it's like, you know, I know that that's, uh, <laughs> that's just uh, immature. <laughs> you know, every day, I think that ultimately the, uh, it's not about being against anything in this context. It's really about being pro something, right? And and if you work out of the premise that capitalism has reached a point in its development, because one can argue it hasn't always been that way. You know, it had its, capitalism has had its moments where perhaps for some people it worked out okay. In our own experience in Puerto Rico, we can say that it's some you know during the after the Second World War all the way to the sixties. Uh, a certain portion of the population benefited from the contradictions of capitalism, from the fact that capitalism, in order to, to develop, it needed to, it needed to share some of those goods. It couldn't keep them all to themselves. And also because it had to, because the working people demanded that. So it wasn't just because they, they were given anything. Through struggle, people did gain benefits. And those benefits, what were they about? They were about a better life. They were not about money. They were not about profits. Not about profits by any means necessary, which is the law of the jungle in a capitalist society, you know. And I really strongly believe that most people don't go by that mantra. But capitalism also encompasses a civilization that has values that go beyond capitalism. And that one of those values is the way in which nature, what we call nature, has become an object, you know, a, a thing. We have commodified nature. We commodify everything, but commodifying nature, we treat it as a thing, you know, something to exploit. Saturated. So is there yeah. one pra- is there one thing you do on the daily where you is there anything we can do to sort of live in the antithesis of that conquering nature? Well, I think like or what I was extrapolating from what you were saying is just not just being anti-capitalist also being pro 
humanist, pro, mm. you know, pro nature, pro building something. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's pro life. Not in, not in that, not in the, yeah, not in that way, but not in that way. That was smart. <laughs> That's that was smart of their part to use that slogan. <laughs> Very good branding. Um, well, I know one of the ways that manifests for you, dad, is you take, and one thing that I love that I've inherited from you is you take really long walks and you love photography, but you, you really, you have a whole series on nature nature actually when it juxtaposed with the city but you take really long long walks that i think there's something about extending time without the purpose other than to walk and be present is pretty radical in the face of a world that asks us to conquer and produce you know if you can manage and to the link from that logic of you know i gotta go get make some money i gotta go make some money instead of saying well we don't have I'm going to figure out my day and where is it that I'm going to put my priorities, you know, and stuff is happening. You know, we are living in a time where stuff is happening. People say, oh, nothing happened. That's not true at all. Lots of stuff are happening. I mean, stuff of people pissed off against the system. That's certainly the case. That's, that's going on, you know, but uh, we still lack that horizon mm. that this film suggests, you know, we, and this is where it's important to go back to the idea that Communism is not the Soviet Union necessarily. It's not China. It's not this. Although I have to give my props to them when they try. But the, the point is that it is an ideal based on societies that existed where there were no classes, no social classes oppressing each other, no groups of people oppressing each other, but, but smaller groups of human beings and mutual aid, cooperation, non-exploitative relationships. Those are ancestral values. You don't have to be a Marxist. You don't have to call yourself a socialist. These are ancestral fundamental values. You should call yourself a communist because communism is the commons. You know, and this, these things have to be done every day. So otherwise we can't we can build a horizon. We cannot build a sense of possibility. We cannot reimagine anything if we don't experience it. And, you know, I have experienced that throughout my life. I have lived in cooperatives, worked in food cooperatives, car cooperatives, housing cooperatives, you know, um, mutual aid projects of different kinds, you know. So I, I experienced that. I have experienced that personally. You know, my, I, it brought joy to me and it just made me, uh, I don't know if a better person, but it's made me a person that's not willing to get to simply say, well, it is what it is. It's not, it's not what it is. It's what you make of it. We're other people. We're other people. Beautifully said, Don. I think our audience will feel much more aspirational and uplifted after this conversation, because I know I, I definitely do. Um, Pedro, where can our audience find you and your work? Uh, we're putting together, Rivka's helping me with that, helping me with that. We're putting together a website. PedroAngelRiveraMunoz.com Simple. <laughs> <laughs> too many names, too many names, maybe, but you know. So yeah, it's a you know I appreciate that your effort in 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 doing in producing this kind of dialogue. You do need to think through this stuff, especially now. You know, it's it's really very very crucial that we take seriously what's going on and that we laugh at it at the same time. The spirit of Chaplin is very important that we enjoy every moment we can while we capitalism and and wish for a better way of living beautiful thank you so much dad and i'm coming for that poster 
Oh yeah, it's yours. I'll save it. <laughs> Pedro, Pedro, thank you so much for, for joining us. This was really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And again, if you'd like to support this show, head over to levernews.com slash MVC to become a supporter. And you can find all of that info at MVCpod.com. For next week's movie, we will be watching Mike Judge's satirical classic, Office Space. So that'll give you a chance to rewatch it with us. Thanks, everyone. See ya.